0: Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would make us attentive to your voice. We ask that your voice would be louder and clearer and more defining for us than all of the cacophony of voices around us in our culture. Speak, O Lord. We, your servants, are listening and we need a word from you. So come and speak to us and make us attentive to your voice. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. So I wanted to begin by asking you a question. Have you ever got yourself in trouble because you ignored a warning? Now, I know some of you, of course, the answer is no. You know, you're one of those safety conscious people. You always read all the labels, adhere to the warnings, follow all the rules. But there are others among us. Uh, some of you, you know you you look danger in the eye and you laugh, and uh, you think that all of those warning labels, those are for those accident prone people, you know, not for coordinated and competent and confident people like you. And so you frequently just disregard the warnings. And I, I have to admit that I fall into the latter and not the former. And several years ago, uh, when my three daughters, Audrey, or three of my four daughters, Audrey, Mia, and Lucy, were quite young. They were two, four, and six years old. I remember taking them with me to Trader Joe's on a shopping run. And I, uh, you know, I, I showed up at Trader Joe's and it was packed. Uh, it was back in the olden days. Remember those days when you used to go to Trader Joe's and you could just walk into a really crowded crater Trader Joe's and you didn't have to have a face mask? or wait in line, dear Lord, come and make those days happen again. But um, but I remember walking through the parking lot, you know, like holding my two-year-old and trying to walk with the other two and big old shopping list and going into the store and it was just packed and uh, I grabbed the cart and I'm wondering like, how am I going to get the shopping trip done. And I looked down and there's a warning label that shows uh, children on the side of the cart with an arrow through it. And I thought, perfect, we'll try that. And so I had Audrey on one side, Mia on the other, and then Lucy, who was two at the time, strapped in the top. And I walk in there, you know, confident, and I start going through and start filling up the cart. And I'm, you know, I'm in my early 30s. I'm feeling good about myself. I'm a competent young father, you know, getting the shopping list done, filled up, three kids, small, you know, and I had these old ladies come up to me and say, oh, what a nice father you girls have, you know? I was beaming with pride, and, and it was all going absolutely fantastic till about the very end of our uh, shopping trip when Mia stepped off the, the cart in order to grab the cheese. And in that moment, all the, a bunch of things happened all at once. Uh, all of a sudden, the cart fell over on top of my daughter, Audrey, and Lucy was still strapped in up top. She got a cut and started to bleed. Literally, like, groceries are going everywhere. Blood is flying around Trader Joe's. It probably wasn't. That was just dramatic effect. But um, Trader Joe's, you know, attendants are running around. Old ladies are walking around calling Child Protective Services on this incompetent father. But all because I failed to adhere to the warning. You know, oftentimes, we can get ourselves in trouble when we ignore clear warnings, now, of course, there are different kinds of dangers. Uh, there are physical threats. You, know, you don't wanna stand on the top of a ladder and try to like change a light bulb. You don't wanna ride a motorcycle without a helmet because these could provide physical threats. I mean, it's physical danger. And those threats are more obvious, but you know, there are more subtle threats. You know, for example, there are ideological positions. There are habits of mind and of consumption. There are even religious beliefs and practices that can actually be destructive and harmful to our souls and to our well-being and to kind of like our, 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 our core humanity. And in the text that we're looking at tonight, the Apostle Paul actually is writing to warn us against some of these more subtle dangers to our souls and to our humanity stuff that might creep into our lives, grab our attention, kind of dominate our imagination, and in the end, it becomes something destructive to our lives. And it's that sort of thing, again, that the Apostle Paul here is warning against. And so I wanna look at what he says in our text this evening. Now, a little warning uh, there, a little warning, about the warning, but this is kind of a dense text. And if you heard it read, you might've thought, what on earth is is he talking about? And so it'll take a little bit of work. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pay attention to his warning and see how it unfolds here in this text. And back then in that historical situation, and then we're going to pull back and we're going to ask how might what he's saying to them back then apply to us here today? And so look at what he says in chapter two, verse eight. Notice he issues the warning. He says, see to it. Uh, In the old King James, it says, beware. In some translations, it says, watch out. He says, look out for what? That no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So he issues this warning about these dangerous philosophies. Now, what does he have in mind? What was happening back then? Well, almost all the scholars think that probably what Paul is talking about here is a form of syncretistic Judaism. So Colossae existed in Asia Minor, so it was outside of kind of the boundaries of national Israel. And as Judaism was practiced in other parts of the Roman Empire, oftentimes it would take on some of the flavors of the local religious beliefs in the same way that maybe if you go to Latin America today and you see Catholicism practiced, it takes on some of the flavor of some of the indigenous religions that existed here. Or if you look at evangelicalism in America today, it takes on some of the flavor of our consumer-oriented society. And so, too, Judaism, as it traveled out, would take on some of the flavor of the indigenous religions. And that's, it seems, like what was happening here in the city. There was a, a form of Judaism that had some other elements that were not kind of, they were foreign to uh, essential Judaism. And, but it was a really dominant ideology and religion in the city of Colossae. And a lot of people were feeling some pressure to go back and to attend to some of the practices and some of the expressions of this religion. And notice uh, Paul uh, discusses three different features of this kind of syncretistic Judaism that was putting pressure on these people to go back and to adhere to this. And, and he says, look, he says, look out, because if you go back to those practices, if you embrace these things, it will take you away from from Jesus, and notice he he highlights three different aspects of this uh, philosophy, as he calls it, this syncretistic Judaism. Number one is ritual practice, and notice what he says in verse sixteen. He says this: He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so he appeals here to, or he refers here to uh, the the Jewish holidays like Passover and uh, Jewish practice like the observance of Sabbath. And he says, look, he says all of those things are great. They're good, but they had a specific purpose. They were like shadows, but the substance is Christ. It would be like if you could imagine me going away on a trip for a couple weeks and coming back home, I've been away from my wife and my kids for, you know, two weeks, and, and I, I show up at the airport and they come to greet me, and instead of going and embracing me, they fall down on the floor and they embrace my shadow. You think that would be absurd. Why would you go after the shadow when the substance, the real thing, you know, me and flesh and blood I'm right here, you know, and... So too, Paul says, look, that's uh, these, these Old Testament practices, they're shadows, but the substance is Christ. And just in passing, it is, it is important for us to note, Paul in some sense is giving us a key to understanding the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, these are not the substance, they are the shadow. They are there ultimately to point us ultimately to Jesus. This is the narrative that ultimately finds its climax in the hero Jesus. And it's through the lens of Jesus that we go back and we read these Old Testament scriptures. He is the substance these are the shadows, but it seems that some people, they were practicing these holidays, maybe some of the Jewish converts in Colossae, and their Gentile brothers and sisters who knew nothing of these old Jewish practices were feeling like, gee, you got all these great holidays you're celebrating. I need that, you know, to feel a more complete and whole human being. And Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you with regards to these kind of ritualistic practices. And he moves on from ritual practice to spiritual experience. Look at what he says in verse uh, 18. He says this, Now let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by the sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Now it's been true throughout the history of the world that people have sought for enlightenment Uh, through experiences of fasting and out in the desert. And sometimes people have had these mystical kind of deep spiritual experiences and encounters. And, you know, when somebody has a deep, mysterious encounter, sometimes the effect that it has on them is, is it makes them think they are special because they had this special kind of spiritual, mystical experience or encounter. And it seems like some of those uh, around, you know, the church in Colossae were having these experiences and they were pressuring some of the, the Christians there to say, look, you haven't had these unique spiritual experiences. Don't you want one of these experiences? And they were feeling incomplete. They were feeling disqualified. And Paul says, don't let them disqualify you. And then he says this, he says, these people are getting puffed up by their sensuous minds, and they're not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. It's as if he's saying, Look, these people, they are holding on to and they're celebrating and they're bragging about their spiritual, mystical experiences, and they are moving away from holding on to and celebrating Jesus. So then he moves from. Uh, ritual practice to spiritual experience to finally man-made rules in verse 20. Look what he says. He says, now if with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to those things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings, Now, in the world of Paul, it was very common for Jewish teachers of Torah and the law. There were 613 Old Testament laws, which I think is a lot of laws, right? Maybe a sufficient quantity of laws. But, you know, there's always that personality type. They are rule keepers and they like rules. And you know who you are? Just raise your hand. And yes, thank you, some of you in the back, um, and some of you online right now are raising your hand. Some people are pointing at you right now. But 613 was not enough, and so what they wanted to be sure was that they wouldn't, they wouldn't break any of these 613 rules, and so what they did was they made rules about the rules in order to prevent from breaking the rules, And so they would build what they called a fence around the law. So here was one of the 613 commands, and you'd build a fence around it with all these laws to ensure that you never even got close to breaking the law because you kept all these other laws and rules. And so what happened is is the people that were on about these man-made rules would oftentimes foist them on other people, which is what rule keepers oftentimes want to do is they want to take their rules and all of their shoulds all the things that they feel like they should do and, and you should do and then they start shooting all over you and they start telling you all the things you should do and uh, and then you start shooting on yourself you start telling yourself all of the things that 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 you personally should do and you're feeling overwhelmed and and in bondage to these rules but he says do not submit to these rules anymore he says, verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and the severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He says, all of these rules about the rules over promise, but they underdeliver. They promise to provide you a certain fulfillment in your own humanity. It will enable you to live the good life to be a person who demonstrates true virtue and goodness and he says they overpromise and they underdeliver. And so he says, look, he says man-made rules, spiritual experiences, uh, ritual practices, he says you're feeling pressure that your faith in Jesus is not enough, you need to go back and you need to have something more. And he says, I'm warning you about going back for something more. And so he warns them against these three expressions of this kind of syncretistic Judaism. And now what I want to do, though, is I want to stand back, and I want us just to reflect a little bit more deeply on what he's actually warning these people against, what he's warning them against, and what he's warning you and I against tonight. And it's interesting because if you look back at the text and you kind of go back over each one of these things that he is warning the the church against, what you'll notice is that almost none of the things that are mentioned are bad things in and of themselves. Now, there's a couple of bad things. He talks about worship of angels, and that's a bad thing. You shouldn't do that. But the other things that he mentions are, are actually not bad things in and of themselves. Now, of course, there are evil, bad practices that we ought to avoid and that are dangerous to our soul and to our humanity. And so I want to warn you against theft and arson and murdering people and uh, country music and all other things that are destructive to your humanity. But that's not what he's warning against here. It's not something bad. Instead, what he's warning against is something good. It's interesting, you know, almost all of the things he mentions are things that in and of themselves can be good. And many of you have found them to be good. He talks about ritual practice, observing holidays. You know, when you look at Jesus, Jesus observed Sabbath. Jesus would go to Jerusalem to observe Passover. He would practice the Jewish holidays. In the early church, many of the first Christians still practiced Jewish holidays. And of course, it wasn't just Jesus and the early Christians. Many of you engage in ritual practice today. You follow holidays. You practice Christmas and Christmas Eve, and you've got traditions and, and Easter, and these are special times with special practices. Some of you have daily rituals. You get up at the same time every day, and you go sit in the same chair every morning with a cup of coffee, and you read two chapters in your Bible. What is that? It's a daily ritual practice. And of course, sometimes these ritual practices can enhance your life. They can be good things. He talks about spiritual experiences. Spiritual experiences can be great things. Jesus, again, went into the desert for 40 days, and he fasted and had spiritual encounters in the desert. And in the early, you know, centuries of the church, there was a whole movement, a monastic movement of the early desert fathers who went into the the deserts and they spent time in caves and in fasting and in prayer, and they had profound mystical spiritual experiences. And maybe in your own life, you have experienced, you know, you've had some profound, mysterious spiritual experiences. You've met God in unique ways at different times in your life. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that. That can be a good thing. And then, of course, man-made rules, rules about the rules, yeah, they can be legalistic and oppressive, but sometimes you need to put rules upon yourself that you feel like will help your own humanity. And so, for example, you might choose to no longer eat meat. That's a rule, or, or maybe you, you grew up in a home with alcoholism and it was a problem and you say, I will not touch alcohol. That's not a God-given rule. That's a human rule. But for you, it's a good thing. And so we can embrace man-made rules sometimes and they can be helpful for our lives and spiritual experiences. They can be good and helpful and ritual practice can be good and helpful. So what is the problem? The problem underneath all of this is I believe that they had taken these good things and they had made them the main thing or the ultimate thing. And therein lies the problem. When you take good things and you turn them into an ultimate thing, it can become an enslaving thing and a destructive thing for your own humanity. And so for example, let me just kind of like, uh, build this out a little bit. In, in our day and age, most of us are not pressured by different religions around us to go and to observe their unique kind of special practices. No, we have different kinds of transcendent you know, uh, places Americans go in order to find the good life, in order to be safe and happy. You know, that was the, the appeal of these religions in the ancient world. Life was out of control. And, you know, what do you do when life is out of control? You need to call upon something or someone to make you safe and happy and help you experience the good life. And so back then they would call upon these different religious practices around them in order to make them safe and happy and okay. And of course, many of the things that they drew upon, they could be good things. But when they became an ultimate thing, the thing that you found your identity in, that you built your life upon, that you looked to as the thing that would make you safe and happy, Paul says, I want to warn you against that. And so here's the warning for you and I tonight. Are there things in your life that are good things, but that for you have become ultimate things and actually have the power then to become a destructive thing in your life? So for example, success is a good thing. And many of you, you know, you want to be successful in your career or in school and you want good grades or you want to be a successful parent or success in uh, church life. You know, you want to be a really good Christian, you know, Success. And success is a good thing. It's good to be a successful businessman. It's good to get all A's in school. But when you build your existence and your life on those good things, the good thing becomes an ultimate thing. It can actually become a destructive thing in your life. Because look, when success is just a good thing in your life, if you fail or you get a C minus, then you're gonna be bummed. You'll be depressed. But if it's an ultimate thing, you're gonna wanna throw yourself off a bridge it's gonna destroy your life. For some of you, the, the, you know, your, your, your ultimate thing is control. Now control, of course, is a good thing. When I'm driving my car on the 605 freeway, I wanna be in control of that car. And I also like to be, for the record, in control of the music, which is always a problem in my household because I've got other children who always wanna be in control of the music and we're always going back and forth and stealing Spotify from one another and things like this. Is that just my home? It is. I'll be alone in my pain. Thank you very much. Um, So control is a, it can be a good thing, but when control is your ultimate thing, you need to be in control of your children and of your circumstances and of your spouse and of what's happening at the church. And you need to be in control. Then then it's become your ultimate thing. It's the thing you start building your worth and your identity on, and you don't feel safe and happy when you're not in control. And then all of a sudden, what happens? A pandemic hits and fires come and smoke and riots and uh, a volatile situation politically and all of this. And all of a sudden you feel out of control and you no longer find your security and your happiness because you needed to be in control and you've lost it because control is no longer a good thing. It's become an ultimate thing. For some, it might be a love interest. Of course, a love interest is a good thing. It's good to, you know, romance and love and marriage and and all that stuff is a good thing. And, you know, um, you can take that good thing, though, and the love interest that you have can become your ultimate thing. And it can be the thing that if you don't have this person, if they respond with unrequited love. You are not just depressed and sad for a while. You are devastated. This has destroyed you. You are imploding. Why? Because this is no longer just a good thing. It's become an ultimate thing in your life. It's, it's taken on religious significance. It is what you look to to make you feel okay and safe and happy. Right now, it's really common in, in, in our culture for people to take political power and make it an ultimate thing. And so, of course, political engagement is a good thing. You know, I came home this week and uh, uh, my wife, Alicia, and my daughter, Audrey, who is now 18, were sitting down at the dinner table and they were discussing uh, public policy. They were looking at the voter's guide and they were kind of walking through and doing research on different policies and positions and candidates and judges and all the stuff that's on the ballot. And of course, political engagement is a good thing. Part of how we love our neighbor as ourselves is we get politically engaged and we be a good citizen. But what happens is, is what is a good thing can become an ultimate thing. And we feel like unless our political party has power and our candidate wins the next election, unless that happens, I will not be safe and happy. And America has no future. And if America has no future, then I have no future. But friends, that is a lie. Like, if you're a follower of Jesus, at the end of the day, it is not the right or the left that ultimately is going to be your salvation. It is not Biden or Trump, thank God, that's going to be your salvation. It is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our Savior, and the kingdom of God is our hope, not our nation's future. And so political power can actually take on this religious significance where we think, I need this to be safe and happy. And of course, in a consumer-oriented society, stuff can become, you know, stuff and products that's good, it can actually become an ultimate thing. And of course, all of the marketers know how to uh, kind of like surround their products and market their products in a way that again and again and again, the voices are telling us the same lie. If you get our product, if you have this experience, if you buy this cheap beer, you will be safe and happy. And it is a lie. And Paul says, look out, be careful, church, from taking good things and making them alternate things that you build your identity on and that you need in order to be safe and happy. And he says, look, the real problem when you start to build your life and your identity on these things and you put all of your hope in these things and you start submitting yourself to them and saying, I need this, this is what I need and I will do whatever it takes to have this thing. What can happen is that it can become an enslaving thing and a controlling thing in your life. You know, if you give something that much power over you, it will take that much power over you and it will control your emotional life. It will control your well-being." And you will be fearful and you will be anxious and you will be insecure because you're banking your life on something other than Jesus and the gospel. And so Paul says, look out. Examine your own hearts, beware, watch out for some philosophy. And there are so many voices. We have so many voices, whether it be in the, in the university or the talking heads on TV or talk radio or the incessant cacophony of voices on social media and, and all of the commercials and all of the advertising. They're constantly telling us, look, here is the ultimate thing you need in order to be safe and happy. And so watch out for those voices. And Paul instead turns us in a different direction. He says the alternative to building your life and your identity on some other kind of practice or experience or rules or products or political powers or love interests or whatever it is that is your thing, the alternative to building your life and your identity on those things is to build your life and your identity on Jesus Christ. And if you were to stand back and you say, why is Paul even writing a letter to this church? It's both defensive and offensive. You know, in a defensive way, he wants to warn them against threats around them. And I want to warn us against threats around us, building our identity on these other things, taking good things, making them ultimate things that become enslaving things and destructive things. And he he warns us against those things. He's got a defensive posture, but his main posture in this letter is offensive. And what he's doing is he's giving this expansive, beautiful, compelling vision of Jesus as the creator and Lord of all. You know, our savior is so much better than your love interest. And our true savior is so much better than any political candidate that the right or the left can produce, especially this year. You know, our, our savior is so much Better than your success, than, than, the, than the Savior of getting another good grade or of getting a career advancement or finally making it or whatever. Our Savior is the ultimate creator and redeemer and reconciler of all things. He holds your life in his hands. He called the universe into being by his very word of power. And when we had turned our back on him and we had plunged our own lives into sin because we had made other things more significant in our life and we became enslaved and we ultimately, these things started to destroy us, God in Jesus Christ came after us. And he laid down his life to the uttermost in an act of radical, generous, self-giving, cross-shaped love. And then he defeated all of our enemies, all of the things that threaten us in his victorious resurrection from the grave. And Paul says, and he has united us together with this Jesus in his person and in all that he's done. And he says, you are complete in Christ. Let me just put it like this. I'll just end with this little uh, image. By the way, these are two of my favorite things. This is a ribeye, bone-in ribeye, probably the best cut of meat you can get. And then right next to it is chili lime seasoning from Trader Joe's. This is what you call bringing a sermon full circle. So we began with Trader Joe's and we are ending with Trader Joe's. Now, I love chili lime seasoning. I feel like I can put it on everything and it makes it just a little bit better. I put it on my chips, they're better. put it on my guacamole, it's better. Put it on avocado toast, it's better. Put it on scrambled egg, it's better. Put it on ribeyes, it's better. Chili lime seasoning makes everything better. But you know, as you look at this image, the real substance, the real nourishment is not the seasoning, it's the meat. The meat is where all of the nutrients are. The meat is where it's at. The meat is the the meat is the gold. Can I get a witness out there? Ribeyes, you know. Some of you vegetarians, I'm sorry. I should have had a second image with like some broccoli, and chili lime, which actually also works. But but listen, if all you if if you said, look, I, I want to, like, all you did was you ate chili lime seasoning it would kill you but if you take that chili lime seasoning and you put a little bit of it on the meat and the meat is the thing that is at the at the center of the plate it will enhance the meat and listen we've talked about so many things that can be goods in our 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 life ritual practice spiritual experience a love interest a political engagement a success And these things can enhance our life and our well-being if at the center of our life and our identity is the true and living God and what he has done in Jesus Christ. And we've surrendered our hearts and our lives to him and our hopes and our fears and, and all that we are is kind of like wrapped up in Jesus. There is where your nourishment lies and everything else can become seasoning. But if you take the seasoning and you make it the thing that really you're looking to for safety and satisfaction and security and happiness, if you build your identity on those things, they will kill you. You know, in a, in a speech that uh, David Foster Wallace, who was an old uh, Gen X writer, and he gave this speech at the, to, the, to the graduating class at Kenyon College. And it's interesting because this guy is not a believer, but in this speech, he said this, He said, here's something else that's weird, but true. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, he wasn't a Christian, he said this, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And then when age and time start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On another level, he says, we all already know this stuff. It's been codified in myths and proverbs and cliches and epigrams and parables. The skeletons of every gate Story, But the trick is keeping the truth up in front of our daily consciousness. And this is really kind of the trick of the Christian life, is to root our own heart and our identity in Jesus Christ. And tonight, we actually close together by sharing in the great practice that Jesus gave to us as his church to root our hearts and our life in Jesus. And so at this time, I want to invite our band to come up, and they are gonna lead us in a song as we prepare to share together in the Lord's Supper. If you didn't receive a little like a plastic uh, cup for the Lord's Supper when you walked in, uh, there are some available over in this direction, I think, or you can lift your hand up. I'm calling upon now our helpers over there. If you need a bread in the cup, you can lift up your hand and they will bring it to you or you can go grab one or whatever, but is that fair, is that good? If you're at home, you don't have to worry about that. You got it right there in your uh, kitchen. But let's pray together as we just kind of close out our time and we prepare our hearts to share in the Lord's Supper. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we just confess that so many of us too often seek to find our safety and our happiness and our security and our identity in something other than you and your great love and your accomplishment for us in Jesus and your living presence in our life. And I pray, God, that even now as we prepare to share in the Lord's Supper, that you might speak to us in this song and in this place and that you would reveal to us those spaces and places in our life where we are building our identity on something else other than you. And would you even use this time just to refocus and recenter us in your love? And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.